a great pleasure to be with you again. And this morning we're going to continue our series called Journey Through the Bible. But before we do, I'd like for us to join our hearts together in prayer one more time. Father, we do praise you and give you thanks again for your presence here with us. Lord, we are unworthy, Lord, but you showed your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege this morning of learning from the Apostle Paul about how your gospel is a gospel, Lord, for all nations. And I pray, oh God, that we would be, we, Lord, we are those far-off nations. And I pray, God, that we would be a people that seeks to share the gospel, Lord, to the ends of the earth. We love you and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> Acts chapter 9. This morning, we're going to talk about salvation for all. Salvation for all. So in our storyline of the Bible, we've We've went through the Old Testament and talked about how it all points to Christ, and now that Christ, now Christ has come, and the Old Testament law and the prophets have been fulfilled by him. Uh, he was the promised one, the one from who, for whom all creation was longing and waiting, the one who came to deal with our greatest problems, sin and death. And he has ro- risen from the dead proving that he had indeed completed what he, what he came to do, to forgive sin and conquer the penalty for sin, to give eternal life to all who believe in him. And after he rose, he commissioned his apostles, and he told them to make disciples for all nations and to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about last time, who would give them the power to do what they could not do on their own. And the Spirit fell, and the apostles... And the the Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were empowered to proclaim Christ and to endure suffering for his name's sake. And Jesus told his apostles that they would receive power when the Spirit comes upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But of course, that, that raises a little bit of a problem for us, and that is who lives, at, who lives at the ends of the earth? Gentiles, non-Jews. And as we've discussed before, all of the early Christians were Jews. Jesus Christ was a Jew who kept the law. And so it wasn't clear at all how it was that Gentiles were going to be saved. I mean, Jesus told them to make disciples of all nations, but the Jews had always been God's chosen people. The Jews were the ones through whom he worked through in the Old Testament. How could it be? What about Judaism? Was God doing something new? That's what I want to talk about this morning in this sermon, Salvation for All. So now if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. From Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we're going to open this morning with Paul's conversion story. It says, But Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The word of God may be seated. Got three things I want to see from our passage this morning. Number one, salvation for all is the plan. Number two, justification by faith lifts the ban. And number three, the Apostle Paul is the man. (laughs) (laughs) Salvation for all is the plan. Justification by faith lifts the ban. Number three, the Apostle Paul is the man. I thought that was pretty good. Um, (laughs) Number one, salvation for all is the plan. I wanted to open with Paul's conversion story because we're going to focus on his ministry a little bit later in the sermon. But here what I want to do is I want to outline for you the Old Testament background concerning God's plan for the nations. (coughs) It begins really at the very beginning, which we have talked about before, God's stated purpose for creating Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, God's plan for humanity was global, right? He created man and he said, have dominion and fill the earth. So in other words, the whole earth from the very beginning was to be full of people who loved God and served God and worshiped God and exercised his good and kind and gracious rule and wisdom and society, Upon the earth, that was God's plan for redemptive history, is a world full of image bearers. The earth, if you will, was created for the purpose as being the stage on which the drama of redemptive history would play out. But of course, humanity fell. We rebelled against God in our sin. With sin came death and it it broke everything. But of course, God had a plan, a plan to restore humanity to their privileged place as, as holy image bearers of a holy God, and that over all the earth. And his plan, of course, as we later discover, centers about the family of one man, a man named Abram. And in Genesis 12, 3, this is 
what God said to Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So uh, the plan and the story of redemption really begins with Abraham and the calling of Abraham. And, and it becomes clear that it's through Abraham's family that what? That he's going to bless the whole world, right? So the point is, is that right there in the very beginning, even at the very beginning of, of choosing the nation of Israel by choosing the man Abraham, God has not forgot about the nations. So it would be wrong to say that the, the whole plan just focuses on Israel because even from the very beginning, God says the whole purpose that he will bless Abraham is so that Abraham could then be a blessing to the whole world. And so God never loses his vision for the nations. And we see this uh, emphasized again later on in Israel's history through the prophets. Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 49, 6. Uh, here Isaiah is speaking to uh, speaking about the one whom he calls God's servant, who in one sense is, is, is Israel, but in another sense is someone greater than Israel. We would say the Christ. And this is what he says in, in the prophecy. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So Isaiah the prophet is speaking of this messianic figure, and he tells this figure, it's too small a thing for you just to deliver Israel. I'm going to make you the savior of the whole world. And then in the book of Daniel, Daniel sees this vision, and this is what he sees. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees this vision of this person who's like a son of man. That is, he's a, he's a human. He's not angelic. He's not a spiritual being. He's a person. But he's coming on the clouds of heaven. That language on the clouds of heaven is always reserved for God. But here it is, a man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he's presented before the Ancient of Days. And to this man is given a kingdom that shall last forever, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And so what we see is that salvation for all What's the plan? It's always been the plan. It's never stopped being the plan. That salvation would be for all, and the plan has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile alike. And so number one, salvation for all lifts, uh, is the plan. Number two, justification by faith lifts the ban. Justification by faith lifts the ban. So in speaking about justification by faith... This is where the theological realities of the gospel begin to tie in with the historical realities of the gospel. We learn the most about justification uh, 
from the Apostle Paul. Now, justification, um, what that means is it's the means of us attaining or, or receiving our right standing before God. To be justified, and biblically, means to be declared right before God. So justification deals with how do I obtain a right standing before God? In other words, how can I be saved? How can I enter into God's presence not as a sinful enemy of God, but as a friend of God? That's what justification means. And of course, so then it makes it it an incredibly important reality of how we are justified. And the Apostle Paul wrote about justification at at length in his book of Romans and, and also in his book of Galatians. But the important thing to understand about this is that Paul was not just a theologian. He didn't write the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and the book of Corinthians and all these letters as theological treatises or just theological books. He wrote them, he wrote them as a man on a mission. Paul's mission was what? To proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He was given by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So for Paul, justification by faith that is being made right with God by faith was not just some pie-in-the-sky theological doctrine. It was a missionary doctrine because the, the, the justification by faith for Paul was the way that God has worked out salvation So that not just Jews, but also Gentiles could be saved. And we learn about this a little bit in Romans 4, beginning in verse 9. He says, is this blessing then, that's the blessing of forgiveness of sins, is what he's talking about. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, that is the Jew, or also for the uncircumcised, that is the non-Jew? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, what does that mean? Well, you got, I'll try to do this as quick as I can. But there's a famous, there's an all-important verse in the Bible in Genesis 15, verse 6, that when God gave the promise to Abraham, what was the promise? This time next year you will have a son in his old age. That was the promise. God gave the promise to Abraham. And in Genesis 15, 6, there's a very important verse. It said that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Very important verse in the Old Testament. And then that's in Genesis 15, 6. Okay? Two chapters later in Genesis 17, God then gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. Okay? Where he tells Abraham to circumcise all his all his male children and all the future generations of his descendants, the Jews, were also to be circumcised. So the circumci- circumcision then was the sign of being part of being a recipient of God's promise. God made the promise to Abraham and to his offspring. So re- being circumcised was the sign that you had received God's promise. And it was, it was representative of the law. Okay, That is, to be circumcised meant you were a Jew. And that meant if you were a Jew, that meant you had that meant you had to keep the law. That's why Paul uses circumcision as 
When he talks about circumcised people, it's just synonymous with being a Jew, and uncircumcised means non-Jew. That's how he can use it in that way. So the whole point is this, is that Abraham was counted righteous by believing God before God told him to circumcise his children. Then later, only later did God tell him to circumcise his children. So Paul's point is this. His point is that Abraham was made right before God. He was declared right before God by faith before he was given the command to work, to circumcise his children. And Paul says that it's a parable for us. It's a lesson for us about how God works. We are saved not by law-keeping, but by Jesus Christ believing. And besides that, the point is, is we don't have to now, but we don't have to become Jews to be saved. We don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian because Abraham was justified by faith. He was declared righteous before God, before he was circumcised, before he received the law, before, in a sense, he became a Jew. And so the point is, is that to become a Christian, to be forgiven of your sins, it's not just for one certain people group who follow one certain set of rules. Salvation is for all people everywhere of every nation, every tribe, every tongue who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who salvation is for. It's for everyone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Galatians 5 verse 4. Paul says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You see that? It's hard for us to grasp how important this is because you got to remember, for a Jew, the keeping the law was their whole identity, right? It was who they were, right? When, when, when Peter received the vision of the sheep descending from heaven and God told him to kill and eat the unclean animals, Peter said, are you out of your mind? Nothing unclean has never, eaten, has never entered my mouth my entire life. Being a Jew, keeping their traditions and the cultures of their, and the customs of their culture. It was who they were. And so to not have to keep the law to be right with God, for many of them was almost like blasphemy. It was like denying who they were, everything that they had believed. But yet Paul comes in and says, but if that, but if that, if we have to become a Jew to be saved, then salvation is not open for everyone. But Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He was the perfect Jew because nobody can perfectly fulfill the law. It condemns us rather than saves us. So Jesus Christ came in in our place and he kept the law when we couldn't. And then by fulfilling the law, he has done away with it so that since he's the perfect Jew, the way we now are made right with God is by joining with Christ through faith. And when we join with Christ through faith, our imperfection is swallowed up by his perfection. Our law breaking is swallowed up by Christ's law keeping. Our sin is swallowed up by Christ's righteousness when you believe in him. And so justification by faith then is not just some pie in the sky theological doctrine. It means everything for us because if we were not justified by faith, you and I could not be saved. But because it's not by becoming a Jew 
But since the only requirement to be saved is to turn from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what society you come from or the cultural traditions that you grew up practicing, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So number one, salvation for all is the plan. Number two, justification by faith lifts the ban. Number three, the Apostle Paul is the man. So we've come full circle now, and we're going to look a little bit more at Paul's theology. It's important to look at the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul, of all the apostles, was given to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Right? So in our opening passage that we read about how Paul was converted... He was knocked off his donkey and he was blinded and he enters into the city of Damascus and then God shows in a vision this man Ananias tells him to go over to Paul and to pray for him. And this is, and again, I'll read it again. This is what God told Ananias. He said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Could preach a whole sermon just on that passage. But the point is, is this, is that Paul had a special commission by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You see, most of the other, well, uh, um, most of the other apostles, especially early on, their ministry focused primarily to the Jews, to the Jews. But see, God told them, Jesus Christ told them to take the gospel to all nations, to make disciples of all nations. And so God specifically chose Paul, as the last of the apostles, to be an apostle for the Gentiles. And and not only that, but it says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I just want you to think about that for a second. Paul was chosen by God for a purpose, a specific purpose, to make Christ known for the Gentiles. You think God has a purpose for you? My question to you is, what is it? What is it? Why were you made? Why do you exist? Why are you here? Is it just to wake up every day and to go through the motions? Or is it to do something with your life that's going to make an everlasting impact in the lives of others? Why do you exist? It's not for no purpose. Look in the Bible. Read the scripture. Pray to God and say, God, why have you made me? How have you wired me? What opportunities have you given me? What can I do? What is my calling to make your name great in this world? And not only that, but it says he was my appointed uh, instrument. Then he says this, to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is an important verse, and this is not even the point of the sermon, but... Paul was chosen to do what? To suffer. So we as Christians must have a good theology about this because a lot of people out there will say, well, suffering out there proves that there's no God. Foolishness. What if you were chosen by God to suffer? Because through your suffering, it will bring about a greater good than if you had never suffered. Because when you suffer, you will know more about God than you could know without suffering. Because through your suffering, it will show 
that Christ is so beautiful to you, that Christ is so great to you, that Christ is so deeply your, your greatest treasure that you will endure suffering to make him known. And what does that tell other people? It tells people that Christ really is that great. You can, yes, we can live comfortable lives for Jesus, but anybody can do that. You suffer for Jesus, and then that tells the world something about our Savior. And, and Paul, was not, it was not just his, it was not just happened to him by accident. He was chosen to suffer. And so our hope in our suffering is not that somehow God has lost control of the universe, and that's why we're suffering. Our hope in our suffering is that God is so sovereign that he is working through our suffering to bring about greater good. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, chosen to what? To suffer for his name's sake. And that's why Paul did everything. He gave his life to do what? To make the gospel known. To who? To people like you and me. To non-Jews. To people who were far off from all the promises that God gave Israel. And that's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us, You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying that we Gentiles were far off from God. We didn't, you see, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Jews had all the promises. The Jews had all the blessings. We had nothing. We were separated from God, far off from God, strangers to God and his covenant and his promises. But now in Christ Jesus, Paul says, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He, Jesus Christ, in Galatians, Paul says that, he bore the curse of the law. The Bible, in Deuteronomy, when, when Moses gave the law, he told the Jews, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all that is written. When you break the law, there's the curse of God upon you. But Paul says that Jesus Christ, by being hung on a tree, became the curse. He bore the curse for us. And by standing in our place, he has abolished the law, he has abolished the law of commandments. He was set aside the Jewish law so that now he has made these people that were separate for the whole Old Testament, he has brought them together in one new body in Jesus Christ. There is one new people of Jesus Christ. Jew, Gentile, no matter where you live, no matter where you're from, if you believe in Jesus, we are one people together. It becomes our new identity, our new livelihood, our new loyalty, our new everything. Your, your loyalty to Jesus Christ should be your highest loyalty and your highest identity. You are Christian before you are an American. The kingdom of God will last a lot longer, believe me. You are Christian 
before you identify with the color of your skin. You're a Christian before you identify with your, your family, your own blood kin. You're a Christian first. And if at any point a demand of one of your other identities conflicts with a command of, of Jesus Christ, then guess what? That's going to have to suffer because my relationship to Christ will never suffer. My identity in Christ will never be violated for anything else. It's my highest loyalty. It's who I am. And if that's the case, and if that's true, what that means is this. It means that you have more in common with an African believer out in the bush who we don't even speak the same language. If they believe in Jesus Christ, you have infinitely more in common with them than the neighbor across the street who you grew up with. Infinitely more in common. You are family with them. You belong to them. You share the blood of Jesus Christ to them. And though you don't know them, one day you'll know them forever. We're family. One body in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in a, a little bit later in Ephesians 3.6. He says, the mystery, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise. In Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, it's, it's astounding if you think about it. All of the promises that God made fall on you if you belong to Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, you become a partaker of the promise. You are the people of God. You are the chosen nation. By God. That's what it means. And so to apply this, what this means for us is that if we are one in Christ Jesus, then it means that our racial and ethnic differences lose their dividing power. You see, race really is a human construct. There's really one race, the human race. Why? Because we're all descended from Adam and Eve. And if we are in Jesus Christ, what's more is that we belong to one new family, one new people. And so it it changes everything. When Christ becomes our highest identity, then those who share that identity with us, we belong to them first before we belong to anyone else. The family of God comes first. Always, every time. Racial and ethnic differences lose their dividing power. The second thing this means is this. It means we as, a, we as a church and as the people of God must be committed to getting the gospel to all nations. This is a command from Jesus Christ. Make disciples of all nations. We sit here, this room filled with people, worshiping Jesus as God. Why? Because 2,000 years, followers of Jesus Christ have shed their blood so that the gospel could make it across this ocean to you. To make it known to you. Why? So that you wouldn't have to spend everlasting torment in hell. But so you could be forgiven of your sins from the good news of Jesus Christ. And God only knows the blood that was shed by our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we could stand here 2,000 years later and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we stand on the shoulders of giants and it's our responsibility to pass it on. The only... There, there are places left where, where the gospel still does not have a foothold. And there's a reason why. Because if you go there, they're probably going to kill you. But guess what? Somebody's got to go. Maybe it's you. 
Maybe it's me. Let's not be in the business of telling God what he can and cannot do with our lives. But let's lay our lives on the table and say, God, I want you to do with me whatever you want. I want to be in your hands to do whatever you want with me. I want to glorify your name however you will it to happen through me. You'll be, we'll be in great company. <laughs> we have nothing to fear in suffering for Christ, in going for Christ, in giving for Christ. We have to be committed to get the gospel to all nations by going, by praying. Make it a point to pray regularly for missionaries. To pray regularly for those who've been called. But I pray regularly that, that, that you would lay your life on the table and say, God, whatever you have me to do, I'll do it. And by giving generously, by giving generously, God has blessed us with an unusual amount of resources in America, unparalleled in the entirety of human history. The amount of resources that's held in the hands of Christians in America. That we can use, that if we did use it, as we could use it, there, the, the, mission, the job would already be finished. And if we release that to God and give it to Him, and there are people who are willing to go but can't go because there's not the resources to get them there. We can release them for Christ's sake to get the gospel. There is, God has blessed us for a reason. What did He tell Abraham. I will bless you so that you can sit on it and enjoy it forever. Or I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. You can be a, you could be a, a stagnant pool of God's grace or you could be a conduit of God's grace. Which would you rather be? Third thing is this that we learn from Paul is that we must be willing to suffer for his name. Suffering is not new. You see, it's only, you see, the devil is a genius. He doesn't have to get you to hate God. He's just got to make you indifferent to the, the, to the important things of God. The, the devil doesn't have to turn you into an atheist. He just has to get you distracted with everything else and make you totally impotent and useless for God's kingdom. You see, the, the devil doesn't care how you don't serve God as long as you don't serve God. And so if he can't get you to curse him, he'll just distract you with everything else. But we must be willing to suffer for his name, to suffer things like an awkward conversation, to suffer things like, things like sacrificing some comforts in this life, to have more to give for the sake of missions, to suffer for things like going to the other side of the world, to dangerous places to share Christ, to suffer things like sending our children and grandchildren to the other side of the world and not hindering them. From the mission that God has called them to in sacrificing for Christ. You can see your grandchildren on the other side if it has to be. We must be willing to suffer for his name. And the last thing is that we must be willing to be bold and courageous for Jesus Christ. You see, it's not if the nations will come to Jesus Christ. It's only when. You see, we're on a mission. We're soldiers in a battle, but the war's already been won. We are guaranteed the victory. So if you were on the battlefield and you know the victory's already won and you can't lose, what are you going to do? You're going to stay in the foxhole? Or are you going to get out and run towards the front lines? What are you going to do?
Let's be bold for Jesus. Not everyone you share the gospel with will get saved, but guess what? Some of them will. I can tell you what happened. If you never share the gospel with anybody, guess what will happen? Nobody's going to get saved. But guess what? If you do, guess what? God will use you. He can't not use you. Why? Because he's promised that every nation, tribe, and tongue will come to him. That Jesus Christ will, that every knee will bow to him. You can't lose. So let's be bold and courageous for our Savior. And this evening as I close, of course the most important question is this. Have you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? God has orchestrated 2,000 years of church history and human history and where, you're, and where you were born and the circumstances in this life to get you in this room this morning. So that you could hear these words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn from your sin. Embrace Jesus for who he is. That is the Savior of the world, the Son of God the king of the cosmos, the one who's coming back for us. If you will turn and embrace him for who he is, you will have all the blessings of God through him. You will, find, you will finally find what you were made for, what you were made to do and who you were made to live for. You will become, God will make you who you were meant to be all along. Let's pray. Thank you for this.